This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Jack Schaefer is a media writer for Politico. Welcome, Jack. I'm the softie of the panel. (laughs) And Kenji Yoshino, a law professor at NYU. Hi, Kenji. Hi, Amy. Don't believe him for a minute. (laughs) Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about every professor's dream, how to deport lazy students, and helping your aging parents, how to do that without bad feelings on both sides. Okay, so here's our first question. Everyone loves something for nothing, but is it right to get it? I have never downloaded music illegally, and if I want something right away, I will buy it from iTunes. But often, if I want to listen to and perhaps have my own copy of a recording, I'm willing to wait and check it out of my local public library, then copy it to my computer. My logic is that my taxes help fund the library, so I've already paid for the CDs that I'm checking out. There's nothing wrong with making a personal copy, just as I would photocopy a recipe from a library cookbook. And in many cases, I already have bought and paid for earlier versions of the recording, from 45s to LPs to cassettes to CDs. I skipped the 8-track days. Is what I'm doing ethical? Can't wait to hear the answers to this question as someone who I think stands between the two of you, because I think Jack, as a reporter, is going to have one intuition as a consumer of information, and Amy, as a producer of art, is going to have a very different intuition. So have at it, people. Who wants to go first? I think that this whole business, and this has been this has been boiling in 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 America American culture and legal culture since at least the invention of the Xerox machine. Of at what point does the copying become theft? At what point does it trigger the uh, uh, copyright laws? Um, what are the provisions for fair use? It's a basket of snakes, and we we arrive at this at this at this place largely. Because because of uh, decisions made starting a hundred years ago about copyright doctrine, and I won't bog everybody down with my my paltry uh, understandings of, of copyright law. But what we have in the law is what, uh, to paraphrase Marcus Raskin, the law is politics frozen in time. And every now and then there's a, a political thaw and the law gets recast and then it's frozen again. And we had a big unfreezing with the Betamax decision where it, it became fair use and the unassailable right of everyone to for personal use record off the air for their for their personal use and we've had all sorts of uh, fair use decisions if i'm in the in the the mud pit wrestling with this question i think i would want to step back and say how ethical are these laws how ethical is the copyright um, act of 1976 and its codicils before I would jump all over somebody who is burning a copy of a CD that they took out of the library. Absolutely. And I I never mean to claim on the show that I'm conflating the legal and the ethical. And to the extent that I do that, I want both of your help in keeping me honest, because uh, obviously we need to challenge the laws it stands and not simply assume that it's ethical and be captured by that. Having said that, when I look at the sort of fair use doctrine, one of the things, and this is, I'm about to throw this to you, Amy, one of the prongs of the test is uh, questioning whether or not the use will affect 
the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. In other words, whether it will hurt the artist or the producer of the work. And obviously, if this individual is you know, using this not for educational purposes, this is purely a commercial use that is taking away uh, royalties from the producer. And so this may be infinitesimal, but if you just sum it up all of the potential uses, it begins to hurt people like Amy who write for a living. So with that to you, Amy. Well, there were a couple of issues that I had with the question. One is that the letter writer's logic was that my taxes help fund the library, so I have already paid for the CDs that I am checking out. I don't think that is how your taxes work with the library, nor does being a good citizen and paying your taxes then allow you to copy this artistic material. On one hand, I understand that copying is not the same as the theft of a physical good. On the other hand, I consulted with the folks at Agoraphone Music Supervision, and they said it is easy to forget that this is somebody's work, that people are relying on the money from these sales. When you download music from illegal sites or you illegally rip off albums from the library or CDs, somebody is losing even if it's a small amount of income, some income. And I am not worried about Madonna, and I am not worried about Sony, but I am worried about smaller companies and smaller artists. I am worried about Righteous Babe Records. And I think that people who produce the art are entitled, even if it is a small amount of money, to get paid for it. And I feel that, although I recognize that it's not a big thing, And maybe theft is not entirely the right word. It is not the right thing. Don't artists suffer um, in the same way that you've described here when their book or their record is taken out of a library one time, two times, 500 times, 1,000 times? Aren't they losing revenue then? Why why make this special exception for a library and not for uh, my DVD or my CD burner? Well, I'm not a publisher, so I can't, I actually can't speak directly to it, but I'm pretty sure that there's an arrangement that libraries have with the publishers to buy the books, maybe several copies of the book, and that there is value in that as well. And there is also value in the writer for being in the library. And all of those could apply to, um, you know, an independent owner of the same media. There's there's some value in being in Jack Schaefer's library. That is, Jack Schaefer can influence his friends to buy music and books. But and, and, I lend, and I lend out books and records all the time. I don't know if you lend out photocopies of entire books um, that you have, you know, um, copied from the library book. I've um, never copied an entire library book, but I think if we keep... But uh, this is the same kind of thing then. But if we keep our focus on, on, the, on the CD, I think that the... That We'll have trouble coming to any sort of consensus here because I think there's something screwy about the copyright laws. I mean, they're not erected primarily for the benefit of the artists. Um, one of the estimates I read today uh, was that the artist um, behind a uh, CD stands to earn 50 cents to $1.50 per uh, CD pressed. Most of the money goes to uh, the retailer, uh, the record company, and the distributor that they're a minor player in this. And so when we cry all these tears for the artists, uh, the people who are really collecting the money are upstream from the artist, not uh, downstream. 
Fair enough. But some of those publishers and record companies are not big fish, and they too are relying on this so that they can stay in business and produce more records by more artists that you may or may not have heard of, but who are trying to make a living with their CDs. All right, let's dive into the next letter about deporting lazy students. I'm a college professor and recently had a former student facing deportation to a dangerous, war-torn country. He asked that I write him a letter of support to help strengthen his case against deportation. He had been a remarkably lazy student and had not performed well in my class. It would be difficult for me to find anything positive to say about him. However, I don't believe he or anybody should be deported to this specific, very dangerous country at this time. What should I do? I am so sympathetic to the wish to express to this student how annoying and disappointing he was, but I suggest that you save that for another time and attend to the issue of the letter. Those are two really separate issues. I don't think the letter writer has to lie. I think that if the letter writer wishes to help this student avoid deportation, I would enlist the student and ask him in a way that might be different from his previous performance in the classroom to give you a list of five to eight positive qualities that he has or five to eight positive things that he has done in his life so that the letter writer can create a letter of support with some assistance and activity from the student. And even if the letter does not support a glowing description of the student when he was a student, it seems to me that it would be possible to craft a letter of support to help this student avoid deportation. I want to know a little bit more why this uh, person is being deported. Have they overstayed a student visa? Have they committed some sort of crime uh, in the United States that has triggered immigration law that is getting them deported? The ethical responsibility is, if you choose to write a, a letter, is to write an honest one, not to serve as the as the potential deportees' immigration counsel. If you oppose deportation of visa holders back to their dangerous countries of origin, try doing something different like political activism or maybe even donate uh, some cash to the student's lawyer. But I would not get wrapped up in in feeling as though I had to write. I don't think one should feel ethically bound to write a letter of support just to block a deportation to what is described as a, um, a dangerous country. I agree. Honesty is an ethical policy, but I don't know that honesty requires that the only thing that you say in the letter was, he was a poor student in my class. And that's why I was saying, how about asking the student to give you his own list of positive qualities and positive things that he has done to make the letter writing both honest and positive. Yeah, it's funny where you ended because I was thinking of the Philip Larkin poem, um, trying to say the things that are both true and kind or not untrue and not unkind. So my primary reaction to this was to think back to, I think the unanimous verdict that we had in an earlier case where we said, Uh, that the person who has a categorical objection to the death penalty, did that individual have to disclose that because he knew that he would get kicked off the jury if he disclosed the fact that he had this categorical under no circumstances uh, should the death penalty be imposed position. And I think we all said that the individual 
had to disclose this and that if he wanted to engage in activism against the death penalty, then he should not do it in this clandestine way, but rather uh, do it more directly. So I was trying to figure out what distinguished this case from uh, that case, because my intuition is uh, much more like Amy's than uh, it is like Jack's. And I think it has to do with the fact that I have written so many letters of recommendation, it almost feels like it's a core, I mean, it is a core part of my job as a professor. So I find it really implausible that you would have nothing positive to say about a student that you had worked with. You know, I think of a student, I mean, maybe the student is unlike most students who come asking for a letter because they're coming with a particular purpose in mind and, you know, they're at the end of their rope. But most of the students who come to me who ask for a letter, you know, if push came to shove, I could write the letter that was both true and kind for them. You know, I may need to do a little digging and ask the student for help in the way that Amy has described. But it's just not plausible to me that you just could not support a student who had been in your class. So, Jack, your position is, given the information we have, which was the negative things we know about the student, is that he was a lazy student. Okay, I would, I would say that you're under no obligation, ethical obligation to write a letter, um, a positive letter, if that is not in your, um, in your judgment of the, of the student. And I would also want to know more about the deportation, obviously. Well, I think that Kenji and I basically say that his being a lazy student does not necessarily mean he should be deported according to the views of the letter writer. The letter writer believes that nobody should be deported to this specific very dangerous country. And so is it possible for the letter writer to create a positive and honest letter? I think that Kenji and I both say with a little bit of effort and the act of engaging with the student, which we think would be a good thing, that letter should be possible. And I would just add on to that, Amy, that maybe this is uh, parsing this too fine, but the letter writer says, it would be difficult for me to find anything positive to say about him, not that it would be impossible. So we want the professor to make that extra effort if he truly believes this. Okay, and on to our last question about how to help your parents whether they want your help or not, and what kind of help they want. My parents mismanaged their finances to the point of bankruptcy several years ago and now face pretty significant mortgage arrears. Foreclosure looms. They seem to believe that $4,000 or $5,000 will catch them up, in my opinion, so they can quickly return to this same place a few months down the road. It's very clear to us that they cannot remain in the house on their fixed retirement income, and their monthly take-home income of more than $6,000 should be fine to sustain them, but not without the uncontrolled spending and inability to face the reality on the ground. The timing of this is about to coincide with a moderately expensive kitchen remodel at our own house. Our question, should we write them a check for $4,500 or allow them to face the consequences of their financial decisions? The usual qualifiers apply. I love my parents, cannot stand to see them suffer, especially in such avoidable circumstances. But I'd rather help them in a sustainable world than continue to throw bad money after the old world they refuse to leave. Is this selfish, judgmental, or besides the point? I love this question because practically every path you take will be an ethical path. Um, if you give your parents some tough love and say, look, uh, you're not my dependents, I can't keep on 
uh, writing checks for you, that's ethical. If you decide, my parents gave me so much, they're in trouble, I know that if I fill my pen with ink and write them a check, I'll just have to fill that pen again, um, and it will never end. That's probably ethical to continue to support your parents. So I, I think that, that no matter what the individual does here, they'll be on good and ethical um, footing. What do you think, Amy? Well, you know, when we talk about the different issues that overlap with ethics, you know, this has to do with, as you say, with sort of moral responsibility and emotional responsibility. The first thing I would give the letter writer is permission to fix up their kitchen. I don't think that their fixing up their kitchen has anything to do with anything except to note that they probably could afford to write the check for $4,500 to help out the parents this one time. But I'm also sympathetic to the point that they have, uh, the letter writer has reason to believe that it's not going to be this one time, that this is a pattern, not an incident. And I do think there's one issue that strikes me as the ethical one, which is that there is a conversation that needs to happen with the parents, because doing nothing, saying, good luck, folks, as their house is foreclosed upon, and they are older people, is both going to be very problematic for the letter writer, who will end up, I suspect, feeling involved later at a worse point, but also because the letter writer cares for the parents and wishes to be responsive. I think if you love your parents, as the letter writer says that he or she does, this is a series of conversations, which probably should have happened a little sooner, by the way, but not just one conversation. If there doesn't seem to be any cognitive impairment that is causing them to mismanage their finances, in other words, they're just people who like to have a good time and spend their money and have not come to terms with their smaller income, you might want to hire a professional advisor, a good accountant, a financial advisor, and say to your parents, folks, I love you. You are facing a financial problem. And even if I give you this check now, I know we're going to be at this place again because we have been at this place before. And I would really like you to let me help you with this and let's get a professional involved. I think that might be also an ethical route. Now, there's nothing to say that the parents won't say, why don't you just write us a check and butt out, kid? But in terms of the effort on the part of the letter writer, that's the thing that occurs to me. I feel like there is an ethical issue here in the question of, um, I do think it's a question of how rather than how much. So if we know that the letter writer's parents have been not responsible or good with their, their money, and if we know that that likely to happen in the future. It seems to me that there is an ethical obligation that's triggered here not to be an enabler and to allow the parents to keep going on their merry way when true help in the view of the letter writer seems to be to guide them towards a, a more sustainable world. And so I have no problem with writing the check for the money, uh, so long as it is accompanied by, going back to what Amy was saying earlier, a conversation, perhaps a suggestion that a third party or a professional be involved in this in some way so that they don't uh, keep on going in along this unsustainable trajectory. So for me, the question again is not, you know, how much you know money should you give them, but rather how the best way to help them, what that would look like, 
and I don't think simply writing the check is is enough. I wonder how much of this has to do with it being the parents in the need of money. If we were to turn this inside out and say that it's children saying that they need money from parents, um, if that would if that would change the the ethical dimension of the of the problem at all. Yeah, I love that twist on it, Jack, because uh, the one thing that did cross my mind, even as I was listening to you talk, there is a moment in time where the children become the parents, right? And that's such an awkward moment. And and as long as everybody lives long enough, you know, it will come to all of us where the children have to occupy more of a parental role to the parents. So when I was reading this, I was thinking, well, this is actually kind of a parentalist, you know, uh, notion. Uh, but ironically, it's the children who have to adopt that parentalist, you know, attitude towards their own parents. But in fact, you know, again, should we all live long enough, this is going to be the position that we're all in, which is why I think all of us find this at some level agonizing, right? I think that we can really sympathize with the letter writer here. You know, I, I, I understand your point you know, Jack, that one could do nothing, one could write the check. But I, I think that in in this relationship, the, the more ethical thing is to engage with the parents in a series of conversations about their finances. However frustrating and disappointing that might turn out to be, I think that ethical behavior requires um, that effort. And that's it for the ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Ann Hepperman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Jack Schaefer and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.